0: You are listening to Post-Growth Australia Podcast. The podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hi there and welcome to the second episode of Post-Growth Australia Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayless. Now, July the 11th is World Population Day, which is a very important day for Sustainable Population Australia, or SPA, who sponsors this program. The aim of this day, which started 30 years ago, is to focus the world's attention on the importance of population issues. Like Oath Earth-Eachute Day, it is not really a day to celebrate except for the complete massacres out there, yet for the rest of us it's still an important day to slightly dread. The theme this year is based on safeguarding the health and rights of women and girls across the world, especially during the time of the COVID-19 pandemic. COVID has disrupted our lives in so many ways, and in many parts of the world, this has further restricted access to contraception and family planning health services. Now, given the global nature of the theme of World Population Day, over the course of the next two episodes, I will dedicate to interviewing population sustainability advocates, activists and change makers from across the globe. In this episode, I'll be interviewing Terry Spar, director of the new documentary 8 Billion Angels, which explores population sustainability issues in the USA and in India. I then interviewed Georgia Burford and Robin Witt from Chase Africa. Now Chase works with local communities in Kenya to empower girls and women and to have access to quality basic health care, including voluntary family planning in fragile rural environments. I'll also be playing the song Blind Freddy from the South Australian band Rockpool. I'm so impressed that the song is brave enough to mention population in its lyrics, so I had to play it. But first I want to play a compilation of sound bites from Spa's patrons. There's an impressive collage of words of wisdom from the likes of Spa's national president Sandra Kank, was joined by Dr Catherine Betts, Dr Paul Collins, Professor Ian Lowe, and not least Professor Bob Carr, ex premier of New South Wales. I hope you enjoy the second episode of PGAP.
1: What do you do when we reach 30 million, 50 million,
2: all of the forces that are contributing to the degradation of natural systems are more or less directly proportional to
3: population. Everywhere is under stress from population growth.
1: We've seen some of the best agricultural land in South Australia built upon by urban sprawl. That I began to see the expansion of the number of human beings was what was causing the destruction. We were crafting an economy that depended even more on apartment and shopping center construction. It was just a very very obvious thing to me once it was pointed out to me that population was
3: a crucial issue. The main cause of Extinction, species loss, loss of biodiversity is loss of habitat which is humans taking over.
1: We, we have to do something about limiting ourselves because we've already at 7.7 billion people, more than twice the number of people who were here in 1950, we have become a feral
3: species. Flatlining wages, um, loss of a sense of community, stress on families, Altogether, it's like a runaway train and it's all going much too fast.
1: Yes, but the biggest threat to environment is this remorseless increase in, in human pressure.
2: I'm sometimes asked how you can rationally argue for reducing the migrant intake without it appearing to be cloaking a racist agenda of wanting to keep particular people out. It's, it's like the old thing
1: when they call you a Nazi or when they call you a fascist. That means they haven't got an argument. That means that they haven't got anything rational to say.
3: It's not that the economy exists you know, in one spot and the environment over there. The economy exists within the environment. Uh, and if we trash the environment, well, we're trashing the human habitat.
1: Are you telling us, Canberra, are you telling us that there's no other economic model but to jam bigger and bigger numbers especially into our three biggest cities and to ignore all the advice about the fragility of rainfall patterns in Australia.
2: I think those of us who understand the problems about the unsustainability of the current growth trajectory have a moral responsibility.
1: Politicians, and here I include
2: the Greens, Uh, are cowards.
3: And as soon as I heard that it existed I thought well that's an organisation that I really want to belong to.
2: What sustainable population Australia most fundamentally stands for is thinking about the long-term consequences of our choices. SPA is the one organisation in the country that in a rational, sensible
1: way has kept that issue on uh, on the agenda. I think that people just like me who know that this is an important issue will be drawn to joining Sustainable Population Australia. It is the only environment group in Australia that is
2: prepared to deal with this issue.
0: I am virtually sitting here with the impeccably cinematic and ever panoramic director of 8 Billion Angels, Terry Spar. Terry, was that a gushing enough introduction for you?
4: It's amazing.
0: Anytime. I saw the movie and loved it. So, tell us about Eight Billion Angels, Terry, and your inspiration for making a feature-length documentary on the issue of population. So,
4: Michael, uh, when I was a child, uh, we used to visit the state of Maine, actually where I am right now, while we're you know conducting this interview. And every summer, uh, you know, my father would take me and my brothers up uh, the, the ocean by boat to this beautiful bald eagle's nest. And we'd see the family and the baby chicks. And you know, one summer, I think it was around 1973, I was seven years old at the time, and the nest was empty. And my father told me that the bald eagle populations were dying off due to DDT. And uh, he walked me through how farmers used, to, used it in, uh, to kill insects, uh, you know, so they could, you know, get more crops to feed more and more people. And you know, that downstream consequence of this insecticide was its impact on this majestic bird. Uh, I'm now 54 years old and uh, in the blink of an eye, you know, my lifetime, you know, I've seen dramatic changes in the environment. You know, the the oceans uh, where I, you know, summer here in Maine now has higher tides by three or four inches uh, than when I was a kid. You know, they're now nowhere close to the number and size of fish like mackerel and flounder and dogfish from when I, you know, used to fish here as a kid. And uh, when I walk along the beach to collect seashells or driftwood, you know, the beaches are now strewn, you know, with plastic garbage. Uh, You know, I see it when I, you know, when I first flew over the country, you know, in the early 1970s and looked out the window of the plane, there were, you know, vast areas of unbroken wilderness and plains. And, you know, my last trip this past year which is, you know, 50 years later, you know, the U.S., you know, now looks like, you know, many countries, you know, and other countries, they're, you know, they're covered in roadways and cities and subdivisions and, you know, chock full of massive, lifeless industrial farms. So, you know, about 10 years ago, I reflected, you know, deeply on all these environmental emergencies that were arising, and I kept uncovering a sort of a fundamental connection of, you know, there are just too many people consuming too many resources and emitting too many wastes And, realize that the real story is not actually climate change but you know something far bigger and more challenging uh michael we you know we have a we have a human impact crisis and uh, the story needed to be told you know i quit my job about four years ago and started producing you know the documentary which we're talking about eight billion angels
0: and that's a, a big move to quit a job, to make a documentary, and especially a feature-length documentary. I mean, I make short films, and that takes the best part of a <laughs> year to produce. But why population, Terry? Why not nice things like renewables and solar panels and um and wealth <laughs> di- redistribution and, and and things that make you popular?
4: Right, right, and all those techno fixes, right? Uh, you know, we are you know, where we are with almost 8 billion people today inhabiting the planet for, you know, one very fundamental reason. You know, humans discovered and commercialized abundant and extremely powerful and portable, you know, energy, you know, meaning, you know, oil and coal and natural gas. And, you know, that has given us this ability to effectively, you know, counter disease outbreaks, alter food and water supplies, and, and in reality, thwart, nature's attempts to control our, our and limit our, our numbers allowing us to explode across the globe and as a result you know there are now almost eight billion people on the planet extracting prodigious amounts of minerals and ores and trees and fish and all kinds of other materials michael from the earth and you know em- and emitting no- enormous wastes and uh you know onto our lands and in our air and throughout our waterways uh you know why not switch to renewable energies? Uh, you know even if we switched all our energy tomorrow to renewables, you know the amount of energy that eight billion people use will simply continue to further uh eviscerate and you know dismember you know the earth's natural resources and pollute every corner of the globe
0: even if all eight billion people acted like perfect angels yeah exactly
4: <laughs> exactly. And uh, I think that's the challenge with technology too is some people think that you know tech, technology will be our savior and you know there are two major impediments to achieving sustainability through technology Michael and you know the first is there you know there are physical limits to how efficiently we can produce things you know through technology we can make electricity more efficient grow food more efficiently manufacture iPhones automobiles buildings and cities much more efficiently but you know, we can't create these things out of thin air. And at some point when you reach those, you know, physical limits of efficiency, any additional economic growth must drive resource use back up. So that's, you know, one major, you know, uh, challenge with, you know, technology. The other major flaw I'd say is the nature of technologies and their efficiencies, they actually yield greater prosperity for those people and businesses that adopt those technologies. And, you know, through that positive feedback, it actually drives greater growth into the resources that sustain us. I, I saw this when we filmed Eight Billion Angels. We're out in the Midwest filming these, you know, the industrial agricultural system. And one of the farmers there is, you know, was an early adapter of all, adopter of all kinds of technology. And you know, he, uh, you know, instituted on his land uh, all kinds of, you know, uh, technology with regard to, you know, saving water. And he did this through moisture sensors on sensors in all his fields. And he used drip technology as far as irrigating his fields with drip uh, irrigation versus spraying it indiscriminately across the the land, which caused all kinds of, you know, evaporation and, and it wasn't very efficient. And, you know, through those efficiencies, he was able to save significant resources as far as aquifer water, but he was also able to save substantial amounts of costs in diesel fuel, which was used to pump, you know, all the water out of the aquifers onto his fields. And as a result, he had like $50,000 in savings the prior year that we were filming. And he said, you know, he's telling me this as uh, we're standing in front of a brand new grain elevator that he just built that, you know, was, you know, used tons and tons of concrete, tons and tons of steel, aluminum, copper, you know, everything had to be extracted and fabricated and, and brought to the site and, and, and uh, you know, assembled. All using all kinds of fossil energy, and so you know it's it's crazy to think that we can actually, you know, use technology to reduce our footprint when it actually creates greater you know productivity, and we you know we reinvest that back into growth.
0: Yeah, so that's a nail in the coffin for the techno fixers out there. So some of the film was based in the USA, and other parts of the film were. In India, Um, do you have any observations whether there are differences between the countries in terms of attitudes towards population and taboos in discussing it or, um, you know, differences in the parameters of what both countries are dealing with in regards to population?
4: What I found in our research, Michael, and our filming is that, you know, it seems to me every country and every culture is unique, and its you know, attitude, and its treatment, and its need to address the subject of sustainability as it relates, relates to population. And uh, you know, discussing the topic is you know, very difficult for many people, uh, regardless of what country they're from, and you know, for many political leaders, because it can conjure up you know, very personal feelings from dealing with you know, reproductive rights and liberties to you know, religious, economic, and cultural values. Uh, but that doesn't mean we should, you know, ignore the only viable way to humanely achieve, you know, authentic sustainability. And at the same time, you know, as you're aware you know, bestow upon, you know, those societies and countries that adopt these good policies, you know, incredible, you know, health and social and economic, economic benefits that come from that.
0: Fantastic. Um, thanks for that observation. Um, I know when it was shown at Transitions Film Festival in Melbourne, I was uh, lucky enough to be allowed by you to open the film and it was a packed audience and uh, people loved it. The feedback was amazing. If people want to find out more about the film and Earth Overshoot, where can they go? And I know there have been questions about um, people in Australia wanting to see the film again, and it's uh, not always as simple as cl- clicking on a website because it's not not yet on Netflix, and yeah, it's a funny old world when it comes to actually watching things sometimes, isn't it?
4: Yeah, we were scheduled to release the film. We had a North American public release scheduled for May and June right now, and uh, because of COVID-19, Unfortunately, we had to shelve that North American theatrical release, which was going to be play all over the country. And we are now assessing, you know, what is the best way to, um, you know, uh, maximize the exposure of the film and, you know, when and how. And we uh, are weighing that. We hope to have some answers probably by the end of the summer here.
0: Fantastic. Well, I um, really do hope that there are, opportunities to show the film. It's uh, an unfortunate year for filmmakers, but where there's a will, there's a way. So today is World Population Day on July the 11th. And why is World Population Day such an important date for you, Terry?
4: (laughs) Um, Honestly, Um, I'm not a big fan of these sort of one day celebrations. I, you know, I think I think we all have a, you know, moral obligation to be when we, you know, in our lives, to be honest, ethical, you know, thoughtful and responsible to ourselves, our family and our fellow citizens and to the natural world. And, you know, to to me, every day I wake up and and I try to embrace those values of what, you know, Earth Day is, what uh, Father's Day is, which has happened here and population day is, which is coming up or Christmas day or Memorial day. And, you know, many other remembrances that, you know, we highlight. So, you know, to me, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, to me, it's a, it's a, it's a daily and it's a weekly and it's an annual, I live that life. And, uh, I, I just hope other people will embrace, you know, what we are doing, what you're doing, Michael, and what I'm doing and understand, uh, you know, uh, the the value in what we're doing to to, leave future generations a a better world.
0: So I think what you're trying to tell me, Terry, is I can be an environmentalist on days that are not World Environment Day. So (laughs) that's that's a huge revelation for me. So (laughs) I'll let that sink in. So thank you so much for joining us, Um, Terry, Director of 8 Billion Angels on this Population Day special of Post-Growth Australia podcast. And let's hope we're all very successful and many people see the film um, so you don't have to make a sequel, Nine Billion
4: Angels. Amen.
5: We take nature, replace it with suburban land We need our fellow creatures by your diversity Mother nature's under pressure It comes down to you and me Ring out loud and clear. Found that urgent two wanted call.
0: So the goal of this year's World Population Day, celebrated on 11th of July, is to raise awareness of women's health and girls' sexual and reproductive health needs and the vulnerabilities during the pandemic. So it's just as well, then, I'm sitting with the two grassroots superheroes that are Robin Witt and Georgia Burford. How are you, Robin and Georgia?
6: Very good, thank you. It's a nice sunny day here in England.
7: Yeah, great, thank you.
0: I wish I could say it's a sunny day in Australia, but, you know, our seasons are the wrong way around. (laughs) So, Now, tell us a little bit about the good work that Chase does and, Robin, how you came to be involved with the organisation. And then the listeners might know why I call you a grassroots superhero.
6: Um, The story goes started a long time ago. I was at one of that school in 1976. I was invited out for summer holidays and I sort of fell in love with Kenya. And I returned many times. And then in 1990, I married a girl who grew up there. And through the 90s, um, I was very lucky to go every year. And every year I went, I could see the forest which my wife's family lived beside was was slowly disappearing up the hill. And I've always loved planting trees from, from from when I was a kid. So I just thought I wanted to give something back, really, as we all often do. And so I started an organization called the Rift Valley Tree Trust in 2000. Um, and we started planting lots of small community tree planting projects and it was fascinating. While, while doing those projects, I kept having discussions with women about their lives and, and often this subject came around to the fact that why do they have so many children? Well, I had two and they had eight or ten and I could see how tough their lives were. There was a very direct link between the, the poverty they were living and, and the forest disappearing as they had to clear more and more land to grow more and more food. and. I came to learn that most of these women really didn't really want to have eight or ten children. Um, They would rather have chosen to have had fewer kids and been able to give them a better better life. But they had no chance to do that because they had no access to family planning. So really, I thought if I want to give these women a better life and help save the forest, we needed to give them a chance to choose how many kids they wanted and let them have access to family planning.
0: Now, I really resonate with your story, Robin, because it was in Kenya, about 13 years ago, uh, when I lived there for about six months, where I started thinking about population in a big way too. In fact, um, I remember having a debate with uh, Catholic priests as we were basically watching from a hill the decimation of the Kakamega forest, which is uh, around Western Kenya. Now, um, I know you've touched on this, but do any of you want to say anything about population growth in Kenya and East Africa? And the impact that that has for people, communities, animals, and the environment. I
6: mean, it's interesting. When I first went to Kenya in 1976, the population was was 14 million. When we started the the Rift Valley Tree Trust, it was 32 million. And I think now it's it's around about 54, 55 million. And that just puts immense pressure on the environment. People are uh, most people are still rural-based, and they have to grow their food, and they're the average size of the farm is shrinking i think it's only about 2.5 acres now the increasing population is is certainly damaging the environment and it's certainly making it harder to make a living you, you know it'll be better for for kenya we believe and the and the people there if they can sort of stabilize their population growth to, to manageable levels where the government can provide all the services people want and and the environment can provide the food that people need
0: yes yeah, so achieving balance and um georgia Uh, What's your role in CHASE and how you became involved?
7: Um, Thanks Michael, so uh, I've been working in sexual reproductive health for the last 15 years and I really like the work that CHASE Africa were doing because I see their work as meeting the unmet need of women in some of the most vulnerable communities in East Africa. My role at CHASE is the program coordinator, so I'm overseeing the projects that we're doing um, that are family planning related and ensuring that we have a real rights-based approach to family planning because, as as you're saying, the numbers are are scary in terms of population, but, but what scares me as the program coordinator and the communities that we're working in is that so few women are able to choose the number of children that they're having so what we're doing is working at community level to increase the amount of knowledge and awareness that there is of, of how to plan your families, um, delaying your first birth risks to maternal and child health, and ensuring that, that what we're doing is, is giving these couples, these families, choices around planning their future.
0: Incredible. I was really uh, taken with uh, Robin's when he sent me a video on Chase and it just seemed to exemplify what um, organisations such as my own at Spa and what we're advocating for on the global scale that you're actually doing on the grassroots level. Why do you think it's so important for organisations such as Chase to provide family planning services at the grassroots level and what have been some of the benefits?
7: Well if I just take you back to say you know 40% of the World pregnancies are unintended and that is because people do not have access to knowledge and they don't have access to services and i think chase's work is incredible because what we do is we take real um time and care in identifying local organizations that have that are working in areas where there's a huge unmet need for family planning so that's when the woman doesn't want to have any more children or wants to space her children out and delay her next pregnancy. So we're looking at where, where are the needs, where are the unmet needs for the women, but also which areas are under the most pressure um, in terms of their pressure on natural resources. So every child will need to be um, fed, every child's going to need clothing, every child's going to need firewood to keep warm and to wash. So I think it's really important that, that We meet those needs at the individual level to um, reduce maternal deaths and the deaths before first birth for the child, it's it's shockingly high. Uh, We enable the girls to stay in school and complete their education, reduce the risk factors that that contribute towards maternal death. So women who are having more than four children, women who are having children before 18 or after 35, and enable the mums to get involved in income generating activities or non child related activities such as agriculture, um, we recognize the benefits are more than just at that individual level too. they help the rest of the house when the mum's around, she can spend more time with the other children, and the resources get split further. so if they're looking at um, traditional pastoralist lifestyles that there's not a competition for land between every child to, to have their um, grazing land and then the in, the impact at the local community and environment level is also um, hugely beneficial in terms of less pressure on resources that's both on the environmental level but at local government level then their funding can go further to invest in child care i mean into health care and education if there are less people around
0: now I go by my own experiences, as as we we all do, and I remember as a 24-year-old back in 2007 um, arguing with a Catholic priest around family planning and um, choosing smaller families and, um, you know, him telling me it's God's given right to have as many children as possible. So I would anticipate that there might be a little bit of resistance from... Um, Kenyan communities for the work that you do um, did you want to highlight some of the sure. challenges on the grassroots level?
7: I've also worked for Caritas so I fully appreciate the uh, the dynamics within the uh, Catholic Church and other um, traditional beliefs I guess that that, that there are prevalent the the challenges that we face we face different challenges some organizationally um, because anything to do with family planning especially in areas where we're looking at improving the environment as well, could be seen as, um, you know, incentivize policies to reduce population size as opposed to reducing the unmet need for women. The challenges we face differ in different parts of, of um, Kenya and East Africa that we work. Some communities see large families as a sign of wealth and prosperity. Others see um, the introduction of family planning potentially being uh, conducive to encouraging promiscuity amongst young girls, for example. Um, so I think what, what we do to tackle some of these issues is take great efforts in, ensure, in ensuring the women that are, uh, and men that are giving this community based education are identified, recruited, trained and supported to really understand what a rights based approach is. Um, what understand, constitutes quality and what matters to the community that they're working in. So is it that they are struggling to um, feed their families? Is it health? Is it education? Where are the barriers? Is it misconceptions around, for example, contraception could cause infertility? We've just been looking at a, um, a project in the Maasai Mara. So we were working in the Maasai the communities. 84% of men disapprove of it, even though the women are wanting it. And they believe 51% believe it has, uh, contributes towards a loss of libido. And 86% believe, believe that it has negative side effects on a long term basis in terms of a woman's fertility. So I think there's a real lack of, of knowledge that we have to overcome. So we engage the men an awful lot, as well as the women, to help them understand the benefits.
0: Georgia, it's interesting that you mentioned involving the men. A a lot of focus is on empowering women, but of course, it takes two genders to tango, as it were. So, it's um, very interesting that you did mention um, bringing men to the table as well. So, question for you, Robin: Uh, We just talked. Georgia just talked about uh, challenges in within communities in Kenya. what are some of the misconceptions and challenges for for you for um, people in the UK and the global north around bringing family to the family planning to the global south
6: well I think uh, as George has mentioned population is such a controversial issue and and some people sometimes accuse us of interfering in in Africa and you know and telling people that they should be having fewer children you know nothing could be further from the truth Sometimes I, you know, I I say to people who are accusing us of that, well, would you want to have eight children and be trying to live on $2 a day? Um, and that usually silences them. Um, but something I'd just like to add to what George has uh, said is that it's it, encouraging that with the younger men and women, they are seeing the benefits more clearly as it were, and it's not such a controversial subject. And just as we like to educate our kids here, um, education, secondary education in Africa is very expensive. We don't have the luxury of, they don't have the luxury of free education like we do over here. So, for instance, in, um, in in Kenya, it's about $250 a year to send a child to secondary school, which is a, is a large amount of money. Um, and so when parents can choose to have fewer kids, um, then they can afford to send those kids to school. And what's fascinating, I think, in, in the figures show that in Kenya, a woman who goes to primary school still, on average, has 5.6 children. If she sends her children to secondary school, that her daughters who go to secondary school will only have 2.8. So sending your kids to secondary school is, is great for them, then giving them much better life chances. It also brings the fertility rate right down. So education is a, is a very important part in lowering fertility rates.
0: Yeah, fantastic, and that links so well to what's been said in places such as, um, you know, Project Drawdown that combined the education and empowerment of women and access to family planning services is one of the, is the, biggest thing we can do to address climate change um, nevertheless the issue is increasingly seen as taboo in the political left in recent times uh, it's such a nu- nuanced issue isn't it but it's so often narrowed down so that it appears that it's xenophobic and you know I've been called it eco fascist many times but um I do wonder if the left being reluctant to talk about it is actually making progressive work that you do at Chase all the more difficult?
6: Well, uh, I think we can both say something like that. I mean, uh, we we just get stuck in at the ground level where, where we we just see how we're changing people's lives. We're making lives so much better. And, and the feedback we get from the women we help is what keeps us going on many days. And I tend to ignore some of these people who make these ridiculous comments because they they, they haven't been to Africa. They don't know what's on the ground. As I just said, they wouldn't cope with eight children and $2 a day. So um, I'm afraid I just ignore a lot of those sort of comments because I know they come from people who haven't experienced what we have and and they don't see the benefits to people's lives that we're making on a day-to-day basis. And at the bigger picture, we know that that has, you know, great environmental benefits as well. But at the level we're working at, which is just changing individual lives, um, I won't take the criticism. I just won't take it
0: that's the best advice i've heard in my life i think robin <laughs> did you want to add to that georgia or <laughs>
7: yeah i think um no it's true i do think it's a real challenge that the sector is so siloed that when you're talking of sustainable development family planning it seems to sit on one side and population dynamics seems to sit on the other and and the bringing together of these conversations um should isn't happening in the way i believe it should be Anytime we're talking of family planning and population dynamics, we must recognise that there will not be gains made though, without engaging women as the main stakeholders. Their voice, input and experiences must underpin any policies or interventions that are being discussed because it's essentially their demands that we need to meet.
0: Both very, very solid answers to a very nuanced question, so well done. So any thoughts on what Population sustainability means to you and why do you think World Population Day is an important calendar event? And I'll open the floor to this one.
7: It's an opportunity on this World Population Day to draw attention to the fact that this needs investment, even to reach that ten point eight billion, is based on huge investment in healthcare and education, which will inevitably result in fertility rates um falling as women are able to make these informed choices but if there isn't this investment then the population will potentially be six times higher by 2100 so i think that the the emphasis has got to be on continually investing in this and i think as you said rightfully said uh, the politics and challenges of, of discussing this has really seen investment drop off and that is extremely scary um, on the ground and at the political level when you're looking at the numbers um, the impact is going to be horrific if there isn't that investment there so I think it's a really important data mark.
6: Just on a general level I think around the world you can see these politicians who um, are sort of saying that family planning is a bad idea and they want their women in their country to have more kids because they're just frightened about voter numbers. There are many countries in the world we know where fertility rates are below replacement levels now. But if you look to sub-Saharan Africa and, and the fertility rates are four, five, six in some countries. And those are the countries where women have the don't have any choice about how many kids they want to have. And numbers as i mentioned earlier numbers is always a dangerous topic to get into but i think everyone could could agree that 20 billion would be too many people for this planet to give people a decent standard of living and surely that's what we want to let every human being have a chance to have a decent standard of living so there has to be a discussion about what is a sustainable level and many commentators say it's about 7 billion where we can give people a decent standard of living and still leave the environment in a way that can give us all the resources that we need and still leave space for biodiversity um so we just have to talk about i think a level at times of of what is sustainable and to me i think that somewhere between seven and eight and what i've read seems to be a sustainable level so if we're going to go way past that we need to have ways for the world to engage to help women as george said it's always about putting women first And if you put women first Population will stabilise because, as I said earlier, not many people want to have seven or eight kids.
0: Yeah, and isn't the theme of this World Population Day around um, women's empowerment and um, choice so um, topical for the fantastic work that Chase does? So, are there any upcoming campaigns by Chase that you'd like to share, Robin or Georgia?
6: So we've had a we've had a grant to. Uh, to, to enable us to contact lots of conservation organizations across um, we're going to stay in Kenya I think for this one and just l- let them know about what we're doing um, conservation organizations often are well-run organizations in these fragile rural areas so they're, they're capable of taking on the sort of model we 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 we've we've developed and we hope that um that way that many more people be, will hear about our work and will, will hear the positive benefits for people and 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 also the environment so so that's an exciting new project for us to get into advocacy. Something we haven't done before.
0: So, if our listeners feel enamoured by the work that you do, and enamoured they should feel, <laughs> no pressure to the listeners here. Uh, where they, can they go to find out more about the good work that you do, and to indeed support you?
6: <laughs> well, supporting us would be wonderful because we we just cannot meet the unmet. You know, the demands we have for our work is it's extraordinary, and 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 it just I, I find it very strange that more politicians and more audit aid organizations just don't see how you know, providing family planning is such a such a you know, great value you know it, it it doesn't cost much to change a woman's life give it give her, her children a better future so go to our website um or we have twitter and we are not very good on the social media maybe georgia can say more about
7: it yeah we've got quite active accounts on twitter facebook instagram and there's a new section on our website that we regularly update with, um, we have very close relationships with our partners and they all learn and listen to each other so we, we have um, regular updates on there that, that you're very welcome to engage in.
0: So there we go listeners, um, as soon as you finish listening to the entirety of this podcast go straight to the Chase website and give generously or at least tell them what a great job they're doing. Um, so look, Robin and Georgia, thank you so much. It's been an utter pleasure uh, having you on here and you've brought back to me very fond memories of
6: Kenya as well. Thank you. Thanks Michael for giving us the chance to talk about our work.
0: You are listening to PGAP and we finished just two amazing interviews. I'm so impressed by the fantastic work done by Chase and Terry Spar. I've seen the movie. It is such a brilliant visual panorama. I really do recommend when it becomes more available to really do check it out. Now stick around for next episode of the World Population Day special of PGAP. Where i interviewed dave gardner from world population balance and i also interview joao Abigail. i probably mispronounced that but i'm sure he will correct me Who's a portuguese academic on population um two amazing interviews um, now just to close off to remind you that we are running a bit of a competition um, so if you do want to email me on spamediacm at gmail.com and let me know what's something in your life that you're glad is small and not bigger or things that you see in your day-to-day life that are getting more numerous or larger in size that you wish wouldn't um, hardly sport for choice in this day and age and please check out the blog on the pgap site that will give you the links to Uh, everything the interviewees brought up and more. All right, thank you so much. See you next time.